Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Caroline and I'm Anna and this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. Caroline here, flying solo this week as Anna is on holiday. It's a bit lonely down here in the podcasting basement at NS Towers all on my own. I'm a bit worried I might see a ghost or that one of the cardboard boxes in here with me might come to life and try and attack me or something. Since the offering of summer blockbuster movies has been pretty poor this year, we thought we would give you this week a kind of edited highlights package of what we think you should go and see at the movies instead or, you know, get hold of on DVD or online or wherever you get your movies. Before we do that though, I'm just going to highlight a couple of lovely emails that we've had in the last week. The first one is from Eden Cook and has the brilliant subject line of just ahoy exclamation mark. Love that. Always love a seafaring hail. Eden writes from Vancouver in Canada. I just wanted to write and let you know how much I adore your podcast. Thanks very much Eden. I also wanted to offer up a humble suggestion after listening to your chat about Monument Valley, which is a mobile game that we talked about quite a few episodes ago now, I think. So Eden is suggesting another game called Gone Home by Emily Carroll. Emily is apparently a queer Canadian comic artist who also has fantastic comics on her website, and this game Gone Home is something that she has worked on. So yeah, thanks very much Eden. We'll definitely have a look at that. I know Anna in particular, who's not normally a gamer, really enjoyed Monument Valley, so it's about time we looked at another one. Eden also signs off her email saying, "PS, would love to hear you both chat about Jonathan Strange and I Capture the Castle." Now, the latter, the novel by Dodie Smith, is something I completely adore, so I'd be very up for doing that in a future week. I haven't actually ever read Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell. I know it's a great big doorstop of a book and there was a TV adaptation recently and lots of people really like it but for some reason it's just always passed me by. But maybe we should put that on the list so thanks very much. We've also heard from Rosie who says I've just discovered your podcast and I'm really enjoying it. My housemate and I listened to a lot of the back catalog this week as we drove around Somerset looking for otter poo. Fantastic opening to an email. I want to know more. She says she is a biologist. It's not a fetish. <laughs> okay, reassuring. We loved your take on films and TV we've seen. It's also great to get recommendations for books and music. I'm normally rubbish at seeking out new stuff and it really helps. I'm going to use this opportunity to say that we are also, although professionally we are constantly on the lookout for new stuff, it's always an uphill battle and you listeners always help us out enormously by writing in or tweeting us or facebooking us or whatever and letting us know. So please keep doing that. It definitely helps keeping the flow of good stuff coming. 
So Rosie goes on with her own recommendation. She says, it is Bill the Film. The horrible histories people wrote and starred in it. It's one of my favourite films because it hits my sweet spot of stupid silliness and highbrow puns. I was a big fan of the Horrible Histories books as a kid, so that sounds right up my street. Thank you very much, Rosie. And I should also just use this as an opportunity to remind you of all the ways you can get in touch with us. There's email, which is seriouslypod at gmail.com. We are also seriouslypod on Twitter and Tumblr and Facebook. We've also just started doing email alerts for new episodes if you would like to get the new episode emailed to you as soon as it's out and then you can just reply straight away with your thoughts, which is always nice. If you want to sign up for that, it's tinyletter.com forward slash seriouslypod. And now on with the summer movie recommendations. So these are chats that we've had throughout this year and we've picked what we think are the best movies to replace that void this summer where there should be, you know, a really, really good summer blockbuster. Obviously, we loved Ghostbusters, but that's kind of the only ones there's really been this year. Enjoy. So the first thing that we're going to talk about this week is actually a big Hollywood glamorous in the vein of the Oscars movie, which is Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar is uh, the latest offering from Joel and Ethan Cohen, set in a 1950s movie studio called Capital. It's part sharp satire and part nostalgic portrait of the twilight years of Hollywood's golden age. It details a day in the life of the studio's fixer, Eddie Mannix, who's played by Josh Brolin, as he attempts to clean up myriad scandals from surprise pregnancies and rumours of homosexual relationships on set to the kidnapping of Capital's most prized star, Baird Whitlock, who's played by a wide-eyed George Clooney. Here at Capital Pictures, as you know, millions of people look to us for information and uplift and, yes, entertainment. And we're going to give it to them. And action. An army of technicians and actors and top-notch artistic people are working hard to bring to the screen our biggest release of the year. Hail Caesar is a prestige picture with one of the biggest stars in the world, Baird Whitlock. So there's quite a lot of contextualising with this film, isn't there? Because it's based on real people and sort of real scandals at the time and a real movie studio. Yeah, so Eddie Mannix was a real person. He worked for a number of studios in that kind of fixer role, most notably MGM, I think he's particularly associated with. Yeah, so that kind of loose term fixer, I mean, from watching the film, I gathered it was kind of a bit like a PR role, but a bit more hands-on than that. We see Eddie Mannix sort of talking to journalists, but we also see him dealing with a lot of the internal operations of the studio and just like generally going around and like fixing problems. Well, I think that is sort of bred of the fact that at the time when this film is talking about Hollywood, you're still very much in the grip of the studio system where rather than actors being sort of paid per film, they're owned by the studio and not just in terms of what films they make, but in terms of their lives as well. So that's why Eddie gets to decide who marries who and who's going to live where and could so-and-so appear with this person because they control the kind of life rights and likeness and appearance of their stars as well as their career. So yeah, he's kind of like a PR but on steroids in a way because he (laughs) he not only sells the product, he also manufactures the product that he sells. Exactly. So he just does everything. Some of the stars as well, we get a feeling that they're based on like stars that we'd know from the time. So people have said that George Clooney's character is a kind of Kirk Douglas figure. He made me think of Clark Gable. We could go on for ages because couldn't we sort of like picking apart where and who all these different people are and where they're from and would take someone with a more detailed knowledge of the sort of Hollywood era that we're talking about than me to do that for you. And me, I've been listening to the You Must Remember This podcast, which is about the history of Hollywood for a while now. And even then, I think most of the references in it went over my head. But I suppose the question you have to ask is, does that matter? Is it still an enjoyable film? Yeah. And I, I think 
yes, definitely. I mean, I would say everyone should go and listen to the Eddie Mannix episode of You Must Remember This. Um, so if you just search You Must Remember This in your podcast app or whatever um, and look for the Eddie Mannix one, it is really, really interesting and quite a good counterpart to the kind of portrayal you get of him in this film, which is kind of rose-tinted. Yeah, right. he's mostly supposed to be a kind of lovable brute with a, a tortured conscience. You mm. see several times during the film, you see him going to give confession and then praying over what he should do. And, and he's obviously, quote, a family man and this sort of thing. When actually the reality is a bit darker than that. that yeah. he, he did some pretty questionable things in his quest to keep the studio's reputation up and Really make money. dark stuff. I mean, from like covering up and discrediting rape victims victims to there are even people who think maybe like bumping people off was involved like it's or covering up the bumping off of people yeah Yeah. it's really really dark and absolutely insane and anyone who thinks oh this sounds scandalous and interesting should definitely check out the podcast but i do think it is sort of like an on-screen romp regardless of all that context it's really genuinely really funny one thing i have definitely learned is that hollywood loves making films about hollywood the fact Mm. that they've been like i didn't know this i only know the one starring judy garland of a star is born which is another sort of film about the hollywood system there have been like five remakes of that film in the 20th century hollywood loves nothing more than not even satirizing but glorifying itself yeah and so that's what this film is about the the studio is making this gigantic blockbuster called hail caesar which is the story of christ told through the eyes of a roman centurion played by george clooney's baird whitlock but you also get this tour around everything else that's happening at the studio and so you get these little vignettes of the other films that are being made so there's like a cowboy movie and then a kind of <laughs> british period piece yeah. <laughs> and i don't even know what that one scarlett johansson's in it's like oh, a kind a of weird water ballet with mermaids in my mind it's part of the same movie as channing tatum's gay sailor movie because they start talking singing about mermaids Oh, mates. So they do. So <laughs> Chad and Tatum's gay sailor movie in this is 100% the highlight of the film. The peak. The absolute peak of this movie and also potentially my life. <laughs> and you get like four minutes of it on screen. I would watch 90 minutes or more of that whole movie. It's amazing. Yeah, it's literally Channing Tatum and a bunch of other men in very tight-fitting sailor outfits dancing with each other because they're about to go away on a sailing trip and they're not going to find any dames on this boat. So they're kind of all cuddling up to one another, dark. We'll be searching high and low on the deck and down below, but it's a crying shame. Oh, we'll see a lot of fish, but we'll never clock a dish. We ain't gonna see a dame. No dames. We might see some octopuses. No dames. Or a half a dozen clams. No dames. We might even see a boy maid, but boy maids got no hands. No games. There's a brilliant shot, as seen in the trailer, where Channing Tatum kind of turns around with someone's legs spread underneath his chin, his head balanced on their arse. And it's just like so great and so funny. And I laughed the entire way through, partially because it was funny and partially because I was just on cloud nine and full of joy. Yeah, it's amazing. Again, it's not only a movie within a movie, it's referencing other movies inside yeah, that, And that's happening throughout. And it's also kind of self-referential because... 
there are lots of parallels with the 1991 Coen Brothers film uh, Barton Fink, mm. which I love and is much darker. It's about a screenwriter and it's set in capital quote marks pictures, which in this film is much more closely aligned to MGM. But yeah, it's all part of this weird kind of Hollywood world that the Coen brothers have built up. And part of how they do that is by casting the same people in all mm. their films. Like, I was not remotely surprised when Tilda Swinton turned up <laughs> in this film. <laughs> you know, playing, in fact, two versions of herself. She's playing two twins, twins. Yeah. Um, who are both journalists competing for the same story, which is a bit weird. They just use the same... Like, George Clooney's been in how many Coen brothers films yeah, now? Yeah, but it's also... It's a, it's a, such a cami heavy film, and it, that idea of, like, oh, there's a star, there's another star, works in that kind of meta way that you're yeah. like meant to be in this lush glamorous Hollywood setting and where you're like oh, another one oh, another one so I feel like although often that really like cameo building cast can seem so unnecessary for me in this it really worked yes because Scarlett Johansson doesn't have very much screen time at all she's only really got two scenes mm-hmm. one where she's being a mermaid and the other one where she's being made to give up her baby and then adopt it back out <laughs> yeah. because of some kind of manic PR scheme yeah. but it makes total sense that of course in the world of capital films, when you go into another lot, there'd be another A-list movie star because it's a film studio yeah. and that's who they employ. Yeah, and that's why it's so great to get all these like little bursts mm. of the films that they're making at the time, which are the moments of like high nostalgia and glamour that you get in the film, and then they're undercut with this idea of like a real harshness and the sort of lie of Hollywood of that yeah. time. So you kind of end up with this thing that's not quite cutting down Hollywood, but not building it up either. And I wondered, did you come away feeling like you were on one side or the other because I sometimes think part of the joy of Hollywood to people on the outside is knowing that there's one thing you're getting and also speculating about the darkness underneath that's why people love tabloids so much I think that's why Hollywood endures is because we don't just love the glossy final product we love the behind the scenes the making of the leaked photos the seedy underbelly the seedy underbelly of it absolutely and I couldn't tell whether the Coen brothers were celebrating that or poking fun at it and and saying that it was a terrible thing. I want to say sort of both. Mm. The other thing that they are kind of ambivalent about is the main driver of the plot of the Coen Brothers film Hail Caesar, not the main driver of the in-movie movie movie, Hail Mm. Caesar, is this sort of communist witch hunt. Mm -hmm. The plot revolves around the fact that George Clooney, the star, gets kidnapped from the set and it gradually becomes clear that this is part of a communist plot to ransom him for reasons that are not really clear. (laughs) All the communist are screenwriters and you're not really sure whose side they're on they don't seem to know you just get this sense that the Coen brothers themselves never really know what they think of this old Hollywood machine Mm. with all its problems because there's basically a whole idea in this film where Mannix is the Christ-like figure at the Mm. centre of Hail Caesar where we do see him going into confession and and the priest is saying you know you're really here too often you're not that bad and obviously the joke is that we know this guy is a dark individual he's like doing all these terrible things all the time and not confessing them but he still has this god complex because he's running the whole studio and the studio is a microcosm. It's a world within a world. You know, you have the sea around one corner and a beautiful English drawing room around the next. So, and there's this whole thing where they're filming this movie about Jesus and you never see Jesus's face. And there's even a line where the actor playing Jesus, someone comes along and says, are you a principal or an extra? And he's like, I don't know. And this idea that like, no one really knows who Jesus is in this film, yeah. what role he has to play. But Mannix knows what his role is and what he has to play. And you know that 
the Coen brothers are kind of poking fun of it on one hand and being like, obviously he's he's not. He's an egomaniac. Yeah, he's yeah. delusional. But on the other hand, you're like, but he's running the show and these studios did produce some of the most in- incredibly entertaining movies of the period. They never really come down on one side of the coin or another. That for me was quite fun, but and it does leave you very confused. It does. And then, of course, there's the kind of added layer of, in the context of this particular film, they are exactly. the Manics figures. Like, I thought it was very telling that, you know, the film ends and then the next thing you see in the credits is just written, produced and directed but, by Joel and Ethan yeah. Cohen. And, and it, it comes sort of, out of this sort of like, they end it, don't they, with this very kind of like divine inspiration-y moment and the text sort of comes out of this golden sky yeah. and it's like this big joke and you know that they're playing with you but you're also like, you're laughing at me and I'm never going to quite be in on the joke because I don't know what's going on in your mind. You are in the show and you did just create all of this and I did just sit there and watch <laughs> yeah. it. Was I not supposed to? I don't know. So I massively enjoyed it actually and for me felt like a real antidote to some of the more joyless films that we've oh, had in the run-up so to Oscar season. I'm so glad that Oscar season is over, not least because I mean, we, we went to the same screening and I think we both enjoyed the trailers almost <laughs> so as much, much as the films. Because, <laughs> oh my goodness, there's a film about Eddie the Eagle, it's going to yeah. be amazing. And I'm so glad we were allowed to smile again. It all looks like great fun, so bring on March Definitely. and the films they're in. is probably lying and Greta Garbo is probably crying while Robert Taylor is locked in her dying embrace. Chico and Bracho and Chaplin and Lloyd are all super. Sweet Mickey Mouse, Shirley Temple and dear Jackie Let's Cooper. Let's go to the movies. Let's The first thing we were going to talk about this week is Joy, the David O. Russell film, right? Yes, starring Jennifer Lawrence and about... Her name's Joy Mangana, is that right? Yes. Yeah, so about... It's a, you know, it's a real-life story of a woman called Joy who invented... Well, the first thing she invented was a mop. She went on to invent lots and lots of other things, but the story that this film tells is about how she invents this mop against the odds, manages to sell it, and makes loads of money. Yeah, but it's not like a straightforward biopic, is it? No. It's quite David O. Russell-y, but it's quite surreal and uh, jumps about in time and stuff. But it, yeah, it's basically about the process of trying to get this mop made and how it became so popular, sort of against the odds. Listen to me. I'll tell you what's going to come of you. You are going to grow up and be a strong, smart young woman. Go to school. Meet a fine young man. Have beautiful children of your own. And you're going to build wonderful things. And that is what is going to happen to you. So when you talk about it, it sounds very standardy, like a uh, woman from ordinary background goes on to become mm. famous person we have heard of. Against all odds, big struggle, blah, blah, blah. Sounds very like standard inspiring biopic doesn't it but i didn't find the viewing experience similar to that no and actually i felt that part of the reason it worked was because it took that kind of standard american dream narrative Mm. and kind of poked at it in places you know so like the fact that it's mostly narrated by her grandmother 
Yeah. Who then dies part way through. Yeah. But sort of carries on talking. Yeah. And at one point actually like appears to her as if she's still there. Yeah. Which I don't think happens in your average sort of rags to riches. No. And story. there's scenes where she's talking to herself as a child and lots of dreamlike sequences. Yeah. Stuff I really, really liked about. So her Joy's mother is a kind of, I don't know if you go as far to say that she's agoraphobic, but she doesn't like to leave the house. It's or a bit indeed, of a recluse, isn't she? Yeah. Or indeed her room. And she just sits on her bed the whole time watching soap operas and one of the brilliant things is that it, the passage of time is shown in this soap opera by what the women in it are wearing what their hair looks mm. like so when she's watching it when joy's a child they look different to how they do when she's watching it when she's a grown-up obviously and obviously joy's this soap opera has just been on in her head her entire life yeah and quite often she has her dreams are framed through it so she will appear in the soap opera mm. and will work out some kind of subconscious issues yeah <laughs> using the characters you know which is just a bit more interesting than a kind of yeah great man slash woman story yeah and lots of people i've noticed didn't love this film it seems to be See, i mean I, I don't know if i'm bubbly i think i'm being very bubbly here. i've not really read any reviews or anything of it because i only saw it last night basically just some people i've seen kind of tweeting about it anecdotally haven't loved it but i the playfulness of it was what i really liked i Same. really liked that I, I didn't feel like it was taking itself too seriously there were points where i did find it overly sentimental i, Same, I yeah, wasn't a bit that, cheesy. yeah i wasn't that into kind of the opening because it is so you know american dream fairy story it is playing around with those tropes there's a bit at the beginning where she's a kid and she's talking about you know her dream and her life and then mm. her friend says you know you need a prince in there and she's like oh i don't need a prince because i make things i'm you know and i found that a bit heavy-handed and a bit like this is a feminist story and there's also a title card at the beginning that says like based on the real stories of daring women who like built america or something and it's a bit over the top and it's a bit mm. like okay we get it starring jennifer lawrence she's going to be a real like badass woman we get it but i did like all the kind of moments where it wasn't very linear wasn't like a fixed narrative i thought were really fun and i also thought david o russell plays really well with the idea that because this is a film about tv and how you know tv really entering the consciousness Mm. of people changed how they made decisions and how they viewed the world and what they bought etc he plays around a lot with kind of like TV style shots so it opens in that soap opera stuff yeah. you were talking about and I feel like lots of the shots and stuff are quite influenced by the way that the QVC stuff might have been shot like there's lots of rotating shots where you feel yeah. like the camera's moving around slowly and we know that at the QVC studio they've got this big rotating stage that has all these different kinds of sections of a home in there's also a really great line with Bradley Cooper, who's obviously in this film, but only appears maybe halfway through. Yeah, he's not in it very much. I think if it wasn't Bradley Cooper, you'd say it was a cameo. Yeah, exactly. Because he plays the sort of head of QVC who kind of gives her a chance to sell her mop on screen. Right, but people are excited to see Bradley Cooper because they like the whole Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence thing. Yeah. And he has a line when he does finally appear saying, oh, people think stardom is about the face but actually it's about the voice and the hands. Mm. And the first shots where you see Bradley Cooper, you don't see his face, you only see his hands and you hear his voice. And I felt there was a moment in the cinema where the people who were really expecting Bradley Cooper got it at that point. And mm. then the next shot is him at a conference table because he's like basically someone who's running QVC essentially. 
in a boardroom and you see his face and then the rest of the cinema was like, oh, no, it's Bradley Cooper, it's Bradley Cooper. And I thought that was really funny how they had Bradley Cooper talking about the way they were shooting QVC and they were using those same, same on techniques him, yeah. on him before mm. he'd even said those lines. And actually that same bit reminded me of, did you see What Maisie Knew? No. That film, so that was a, um, a really nice... Henry James novel? Yeah, um, re- really nicely shot, all from the point of view of the girl. Mm. So there was an awful lot of like her being half the height of adults, you only saw half the adults. Oh, that's fun. That same bit where you first see Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence and her ex-husband have come to QVC's headquarters to try and get five minutes in front of an executive to pitch her mop mm-hmm. and her ex-husband is like trying to talk their way in and he's standing up talking to the other men and she's just like sat on a bench yeah. and the camera focuses on her so you see like two-thirds of the men and all of her yeah. and there's just very much this feeling of like she's the one with all the ideas she's the one with the business plan and yet she's just sat there letting them and the men are just talking over her head yeah it's and, a real boys club yeah. moment isn't it you're not part of the gang yeah. yeah i loved those kinds of things i also came away from it apparently this is completely wrong but i was like yeah i thought the aspect ratio was really weird at that wasn't it and apparently it was completely normal oh, I something about that. it felt like watching tv to me okay. so obviously my brain's gone like oh yeah it must have been the aspect ratio and it must have been something else <laughs> not not making any sense but you know it felt very like he'd consciously played around with that idea mm. that also we have to talk about the bit where joy becomes a cowboy at the yeah. end because <laughs> yeah. that i absolutely my, my heart was full of love during yeah, that same, it was me too it's brilliant and i know that some people are going to be like that was ridiculous because there's basically this whole shot where she's like putting on sunglasses because she's just basically done this amazing business well she goes down to texas to kind of sort out some guy that's been screwing her over yeah. business wise and because it's texas like he's all wearing a stetson and stuff yeah. and she's just wearing like normal clothes isn't she she's well doesn't she have a leather jacket she's wearing on. like a black leather jacket yeah. otherwise she's just wearing like trousers yeah just normal. but she kind of like marches down the street yeah all sort of like someone like marching into a saloon yeah and the whole way it's shot and like the sort of texas scenery and everything you just immediately go like ah cowboys yeah but that's um, the thing because it's again it's like at the beginning we open with soap opera and then we go into children's fairy tale and then you have you know american dream star stuff and then you've got like cowboy shootout at the end Mm. he's really playing around with all these great classic american ideas of storytelling and they're all kind of merging together and it's all a bit weird and so i can see why some people would watch it and walk away and be like what Mm. (laughs) but i loved it well it it stood out all the more for me because the trailers they played at the screening i went to all the film i guess because we're in oscar season right Mm. and what do the oscars love more than like films about real famous men mm. played by famous men just film after film seemed to be like there's like the the wall street one and there's the boxing one yeah, and yeah. just all of these like and the, the newsroom the newsroom one. One. that's not called the newsroom that's the tv show but you know what i mean the the boston globe the boston thing. globe yeah. um catholic church yeah. investigation one yeah just trailer after trailer was for biopics of famous men yeah i mean I, maybe i'm doing a disservice maybe they are more interesting than that but we'll have to find out but they, the trailers made them look like very straightforward. Mm. But even women, like the Danish girl, I don't, I don't want to go see the Danish girl. No, I girl. don't either. It looks, I'm sorry, it just looks a bit twee and a bit boring. Yeah. Like every, what I liked about this was it was a bit more fun. Yeah. So it set me up to appreciate this film as more interesting and sort of weird than that, and I really like that. Yeah, because I haven't seen a whole load of David O. Russell films. I've obviously seen Silver Linings Playbook and American Hustle. Yeah, those are the only two I've seen as well. Which I thought were good mm. and fine. But I wasn't. I wouldn't be like, yeah, I would watch them again. Particularly, I would, I would watch American Hustle again. 
I don't know if it's because I found American Hustle like very indulgent and maybe yeah, it is. Yeah, very indulgent and very kind of like circle jerky and like, yeah, look at the men like doing crazy shit. <laughs> and I'm like, I prefer the joy endlessly. Mm. Like, and I thought it was funny how, I mean, obviously making these films does not happen overnight, but I thought it was interesting how we had American Hustle and then obviously American Hustle became a talking point way after its release, after the Sony leak and, mm. and the fact that Bradley Cooper was getting paid so much more than Jennifer Lawrence, etc. The men got way more money than the women in that film. And then we have this film, also by David O. Russell, which is kind of American hustle in that it's about, like, it's an American dreamy, how yeah. can we make lots of money style thing. But we've got the woman centred and it's all about the woman and presumably Jennifer Lawrence got paid the most for that film. You'd really <laughs> hope so. <laughs> really She's hope. in every single shot. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I mean, so I thought it was interesting that, that, that we've had that kind of narrative in our culture happening mm. at the same time as these yeah, films that's good developed point. from him. But, I mean, I'm presumably there. That's completely coincidental. Nothing to do with each other. I don't know. I, th- I think it's... Perhaps there is something to do with it, but it's maybe more the kind of marketing films as including strong women. It's now a thing. It's now a thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I think the the reaction to the Sony leak was part of that culture shift. Yeah. It's like, did you see... Sorry, this is just a a pet uh, peeve of mine that's just constantly going around in my head, how they're marketing Pride and Prejudice and Zombies as like a feminist take on Jane Austen novels. Are they they really? (laughs) I haven't seen that. Makes me want to die. Oh, oh, but I really want to see that film I know, so for zombie I, reasons, obviously. not for. <laughs> obviously, I'm going to go, but like, please don't, please don't think I'm that stupid, <laughs> please. Yeah, but I, I really liked it. Would yeah, see again. Would see again, and would recommend listeners if, if you've also been put off by any of the reaction to it, don't be and yeah. give it a go. Yeah. going to talk about A Bigger Splash, which is a movie that's just come out. It is a dark, erotic thriller centering on a David Bowie-esque pop star, who's played by Tilda Swinton, who has retreated to a remote Italian island to recover from a throat operation in absolute silence. She's living there in peace with her recovering alcoholic boyfriend, and all is well, until her ex-lover and producer Harry turns up, along with his extremely sexy newly discovered daughter. They're played by Ray Fiennes and Dakota Johnson. It's loosely based on a 1969 film called La Piscine and is directed by Luca Guadino, who also made I Am Love with Tilda Swinton. Marianne, Paul's headaches, are they a problem? Harry, stop this fucking shit, all right? You can't talk. I'm not going to repeat it. Of course you could talk. When Bjork had her operation, after two weeks, she was... I don't give a fuck what Bjork said, all right? (laughs) Or Adele. No, and nothing's a problem here. Nothing a few Neurofan can't take care of. So I haven't seen the original Italian film. No, me neither. I've got a friend who's like really into sort of European 60s cinema and she loves it. I have not seen it at all. I read the Wikipedia page for it and it sounds, which <laughs> sounds is basically the same as seeing it, and it sounds really, really 60s. Yeah. Like it stars Jane Birkin and is extremely sexy. So it's obviously all basically set at this very luxurious Italian holiday home, right? And it's got like a beautiful pool and like different buildings and amazing views. 
and Tilda Swinton is sort of lounging around by the pool in a nice white swimming costume and her boyfriend's looking all handsome and ripped and then Dakota Johnson turns up and she's gorgeous as well and Ray Fiennes is running around with his dick out. Like... Oh yeah, we should mention early on, you see a lot more of Ray Fiennes' penis than maybe you would be expecting from a film. I'm seeing him at the theatre tonight, but I assume with his, all his clothes on. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Might be in for a treat. Yeah, and it's very tonally, visually relaxed, but then they have this soundtrack that's like super stressful. Mm, it's almost like a horror it. film soundtrack yeah. that kind of giving you that sort of eerie tension at all times. And they do lots of weird stuff with the camera so you'll get like really zoomed in on someone chewing or smiling on their mouth and it suddenly becomes like quite a violent space Mm. or like their hands and suddenly you're like, oh my God, what are they going to do with those hands? And there's a lot of showing the really, really beautiful sort of rural landscape of this Italian island with like screamy, tense music going on. Mm -hmm. So you're constantly thinking like, I know it looks lovely, but underneath it's violent. Yeah, exactly. What you're thinking the whole time. And there's lots of weird nods to this in the script so for example there's a bit where harry goes to take a piss and tilda swinton's boyfriend is like harry come on that's a grave like don't and then he's like all of europe is a grave (laughs) it's a joke in the script but you're like okay mr script writer we get it like it reminded me in character terms of patrick marber's closer which is was a play and then a film with jude law and scarlett johansson so it's also a four-hander essentially about two couples who kind of break up and reform in different ways and and that's kind of how this felt as well that at the beginning of the film you feel like you've got everybody's relationship pegged you've got tilda swinton and her boyfriend, and Harry, Ray Fiennes, and his daughter. Mm. And then as the film goes on, that kind of starts to unravel. You start to question it, like, are Tilda Swinton and Ray Fiennes as over as she thinks they are? Mm. Like, is Tilda Swinton's boyfriend going to get with Dakota Johnson because she's young and hot? Like, Is, is there an incestuous Is there an incestuous angle to her relationship with her new father? Like, yeah. It's all basically every single relationship in it, it becomes implicitly inflicted with either sex or death. You're like, oh, they're either going to fuck or murder each other yeah. about every person and their relationship or with every other person. possibly one and then the other. Yeah, exactly. So it's, that's where all the tension and stress comes from. I found it like quite indulgent. And I know it that is. that's a word that's so easy to use and like is often used by people who just didn't like anything. It's like, oh, I found it indulgent. But... It really is indulgent. Like, it's very long and very kind of, like, rambling. And I feel like I came away from it and I was like, what was the message of that film? I know not all films have to have, like, a succinct message, but, like, what was it trying to make me feel? What was it trying to say? What was the point of it in any way? And I was like, I can't think of one. Literally one. And going back to how how it was shot, it just feels so deliberately artsy. Mm. Like, there was no point to it other than we did an artsy thing. Yeah. Which is annoying i find it annoying i i am all for kind of high-blown technique or form when it is in service of something so like i think actually a good comparison is the the lobster which we talked about a few episodes ago which is similarly a quite sort of cinematically innovative and deliberately weird film self-consciously kind of artistic in quote marks but in service of its dystopian location and stuff whereas i came out of a bigger splash just going like well tilda swinton is good at acting because she was somehow the main presence in that even though she wasn't speaking oh and ray finds his penis the thing i came away thinking was my god i would do anything 
thing to get with Tilda Swinton. She's yeah. so ridiculously gorgeous. She's amazing in it. Her clothes are incredible. I, there's actually an interesting article with because Dior did all the clothes oh, right. um, and all the costume design for the film, and there's an, an interesting piece on the, on that which I thought was brilliantly done. But it was a style over substance film completely. Mm. One thing that made this point for me was there's a running sort of undercurrent about race in this film yeah and so there's a moment where dakota johnson and tilda swinton's boyfriend are walking around and they come across a group of black refugees yeah because the island is sort of out in the mediterranean and there's a kind of suggestion that it's one of the places where refugees coming in boats are arriving so there's been a boat that's come onto the island very recently so there's this new sort of influx of refugees and then you see them later by a police station sort of in a camp in like bad conditions and there's this running plot about racism and reflecting the refugee crisis and it never ever comes to a head and there's a moment in it and this is like a big spoiler so if you're going to see the film don't listen to me where they're at a police station and there has been a murder and there's an suddenly an option for them to blame a sort of incoming refugee a bit like the black intruder in the oscar pistorius case yeah and you think here it is here it's coming the point that they've been building up to this entire time and it just disappears just goes nowhere just goes and you're like there's no real conversation going on here you can't just allude to stuff and then not actually have anything of substance to do with it yeah that was that was annoying because i felt exactly the same firstly i thought the film was going to end about 15 minutes before that because Mm. there's an amazing shot again spoiler hopefully people have already turned off who are actually going to watch this film a character gets killed in the swimming pool at the holiday home and there's this I mean, cinematically really amazing shot from above where his body's like slumped over and sunk in the bottom of the swimming pool and you're seeing it from above and it's like a David Hockney painting, like just the flat surface of the water, but somehow like you can still see the body underneath and it's really, really clever. That bit is really well directed. I thought that was the end of the film. So many people I've spoken to have said the exact same thing, that that is the moment in the film where you're like, okay, and this is the end. Mm. And then there's another half an hour or something? Yeah, so, so I thought, didn't totally enjoy that, but good ending because now... I get to speculate in my head about how the various fluid relationships we saw, how they reform after this crisis and how everyone deals with it. And that is maybe some better writing that they've mm. left that open. And so I was like literally putting my coat on when, <laughs> and, and then it cuts to like the next morning and the police have arrived. It's like, what? No. And then they have a whole sort of no, like they... investigation side to yes. it. Yes. And so then I thought that the next best moment for the film to end was when Tilda Swinton and you can see it on her face because she is a very good actor. She takes the morally regrettable decision to try and make the suggestion of a black intruder. And you can tell that she is doing it in full knowledge of what she's doing. Mm. And I was like, hmm, interesting. Never mentioned again. Yeah, they <laughs> just gloss over on. it. And so how they actually end up ending the film is with thoughts on celebrity, which is how the film began which I found rather, again, vapid. They, they didn't, wasn't really saying anything. It was just like, she's a celebrity, so maybe all these problems are going to go away, which was kind of the implication at the beginning that she was a celebrity, so she was able to book this incredible Italian retreat. She was able to get over her problems and her boyfriend was able to get over his alcoholism. Because they're wealthy and yeah. famous. So it um, didn't, but not, none of it tied together satisfactorily. So not the film we were hoping, I think, a bigger splash, but I did, did love watching Tilda Swinton, and it just made me really want to go on holiday to a beautiful Italian villa, ideally with Tilda Swinton. Yeah, exactly.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now we're going to talk about Love and Friendship, which is a film adaptation of Jane Austen's epistolary novel Lady Susan. It was written and directed by Whit Stillman and stars Kate Beckinsale and Chloe Savini. It concerns the society adventures of the widowed Lady Susan Vernon in 1790s England as she tries to outrun scandalous rumours to secure husbands for herself and her daughter. <laughs> Have you read the novella? Yes, but a long time ago. I haven't. I've read the other six Jane Austen novels. Yeah, um, so there's but... six completed Jane Austen yeah. novels. So I've got quite fancy complete works of Jane Austen and there's like Lovely. six proper volumes and then there's a seventh volume which has Lady Susan and a whole load of her other kind of juvenilia where she started lots of different she did like histories which I love I love the juvenilia of Austen and so just to make it extra confusing one of the other juvenilia in that volume is called Love and Friendship so he's borrowed the title for the film from another Jane Austen Uh. scrap as it were and but used the plot of Lady Susan. That's interesting. This basically the plot of Love and Friendship is widowed Lady Susan searching for her next partner and yeah. also a partner for her daughter. That's a very reductive way of looking at it, but that's basically the plot. So she's using Chloe Savini as her best friend to sort of advise her on this. Yes. So that's, I guess, where the title of Love and Friendship comes to play into this. Yes, right? I think what he's trying to say is that the titular friendship is between Kate Beckinsale's character, Lady Susan, and her best friend, Alicia Jordan who is an American but lives in London and then the love of the title is the love that Lady Susan is seeking i.e. a husband but she's not really seeking love but at all but she's not she? it's ironic you know love is just a tool to her to get what she wants which is safety and security financial security financial security And this is an interesting point with this film, because I think on one level, Lady Susan is the villain. Like, she manipulates people, she lies to people, she does whatever is in her own best interests, Mm -hmm. sometimes even to the detriment of her own daughter, Mm -hmm. to get what she wants. Which is obviously...
obviously not good and she is a kind of morally dubious character to put it lightly but also she is a widow with no money who is dependent on the kindness of her in-laws and her relatives to have anywhere to live Mm -hmm. she has probably very little education and there's no potential profession she can follow or anything like that Mm -hmm. so in another sense she's just doing what she has to yeah exactly she's just got a way about her hasn't she that's the problem but she's very very charismatic wonderfully played by Kate Beckinsale absolutely amazing and I really hope incidentally that this is the beginning of Kate Beckinsale the slightly older actress doing interesting roles that would be really cool because I feel like to her great credit she's really milked the kind of I'm young and hot I can be the hero in Underworld I can make loads of money from an action franchise etc etc but she is an outstanding like straight actress I was really really impressed by her performance in this the character is just so interesting to watch and charismatic and funny and clever that even if you don't necessarily want her to win, you want to keep watching her. Yeah, and her dialogue is so sharp. So and sharp. She's so glib and she's so completely invested with the society mores of her time mm-hmm. that you're kind of fascinated by her. The performances in this all round, I thought, were really, really good mm. because you really need good performances to keep a level of pace in a film like this. So it is extremely quick-witted and there's constant sort of sparring dialogue and it's all very sort of light, yes. isn't it? And I think for that to be carried lightly and for it to seem not like a drag in any way you need really really good funny performances yes because you don't get any action from anywhere else it's all character yeah. driven like they're, as they're you'd a... expect from austin I guess. exactly there's no external events that are going to give you any help whatsoever you can't have a great big set piece carriage chase or anything like mm. that you know it's all inside drawing rooms or little turns about the lawn people <laughs> talking to each other that's all you've got and i think whit stillman made some really interesting directorial decisions with that that relate to it in that it looks a lot like a kind of BBC period drama you know lots of amazing interiors great costumes incredible hairstyles country houses etc but he deviated from the set tropes in a a few ways that really help it one is the music Mm -hmm. he didn't use a film scorey sound swelling strings he used what sounds to me anyway like actual music of the period in properly recorded versions Mm -hmm. so a lot of the time it sounds like it could just be someone singing in another room or whatever it doesn't give you that sense of surreality that like a kind of swelling string soundtrack gives you yeah and it was very pacey again like the dialogue and everything else it's that kind of music that keeps you on the edge of the seat like almost a bit suspenseful exactly yeah exactly and then also he broke the fourth wall a bit particularly at the beginning to introduce all the characters Mm -hmm. so rather than having expository dialogue that's like and this is sir james martin he is the brother of blah 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 i should introduce you you know Mm -hmm. when the first time you see a character you get a shot of them looking straight into the camera and then underneath their face some text appears on the screen telling you who they are Mm -hmm. he was quite playful with text very much as well wasn't he so for example when someone's reading out a letter you get all of the text appearing on screen like verbatim yeah there's a really funny little exchange about that isn't there where i've forgotten his name but he's hugo from the vicar of dibley (laughs) he's also the son from sense and sensibility who's inheriting so he plays one of the older figures in the plot and he's married to jenna redgrave Mm -hmm. and she's just received a letter from their daughter but she's got a cold and she doesn't want to read it so she asks him to read it and there's clearly some like prior beef between them that he doesn't read things properly so she says and read all of it don't you know just read the bits you want to read so he reads all of it including the punctuation Mm -hmm. so he goes like dear mother comma and as he's reading the comma will appear the comma will appear on the screen (laughs) it's just an example of like heightening the gag isn't it like it would be funny if they just did that scene with the dialogue but having it on screen as well makes 
makes it all the funnier. Yeah, I completely agree with you that this was a film that was shot like a BBC period drama, but not edited like one. It was edited much more playfully, much more quickly, and in terms of, you know, the pace of when you're watching it. And yeah, just with more fun and slight weirdness. It was almost like a BBC period drama edited in a Wes Anderson way. Yeah, exactly. It's just put together. All of the kind of production things surrounding the visuals make it a bit more interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. It never dragged and it felt like it went quite quickly that hour and a half or whatever. It just sort of runs over you. Mm. There's there's not loads of depth to this film. You don't have to spend ages trying to guess different characters' motivations. You don't have to spend ages trying to figure out any symbolism or wider themes they're pulling at. You just sort of race along with it and it's really funny and it's really enjoyable and everything's tied up nicely by the end. And I don't know, there's something quite pleasurable about that in a film experience. Yeah, in a sense, it actually reminds me of the drama of the period. So stuff like she's dupes to conquer and things like that Mm -hmm. you know plays where the whole point of them was to take some characters that were little more than expressions of tropes like mrs malaprop and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and then screw them up into a really complicated situation and then spend the third act detangling it into a neat solution Mm -hmm. and that's sort of what happens in this yeah in that you meet all these characters they very quickly get intertwined into complicated relationships and then she untwiddles it and that's the end yeah i completely agree and i loved that i found quite refreshing it was just like a nice glass of water at the end of the long day that you could just down and then be like that was really really enjoyable (laughs) drama doesn't have to be dramatic in order to be good or like cloying or overwrought it was just perfect as it was So the first thing we're going to talk about this week is Victoria. Victoria is the story of a single eventful night in central Berlin, told from the perspective of one young woman, the titular Victoria. Over the course of the evening, she meets a man and his three friends in a nightclub and quickly becomes caught up in petty crime that escalates at an alarming pace. Now, I controversially feel that you maybe shouldn't know very much about Victoria going in. I totally agree. I think if you are planning to see this film, turn this off now, because I think everyone should experience it in the way I did, which is knowing nothing about it i knew literally apart from you told me the title of the film and that we were doing it on the podcast this week i knew nothing else about it and that was a really great experience so this is rarely for us this is like an actual sort of enforceable spoiler warning yeah please Um, do turn it off those who have seen it welcome back (laughs) join us as we discuss it we have to do something please can can you help us okay yeah no problem I'm the big driver. Yeah. What's happening? So yeah, it builds very slowly, which is a part of the joy of it. You are just with Victoria on this night out and like a real night out, you don't know what direction it's going to go in or where she's going to end up. Yes. So the big gimmick of it, I suppose it's been discussed a lot, particularly when it was first screened at festivals last year, is that the whole thing was shot in a single take. Mm. It's a two and a bit hour take of the same thing. So it starts with her dancing in an underground nightclub in Berlin, strobe lights, really sort of bright, like techno music. And then it follows her in real time 
time, basically. Over the course of the night. Which is one of the things that I loved about it so much. I do think it is worth talking about. I know it's the thing that everyone's been talking about, but the fact that they managed to shoot it in a take is absolutely insane to me. I assume, and I don't actually know because I haven't read that much about the production of this, that this all the sound must have been done in post because they're filming outside. But they did film. They, they made three takes and then they just picked the best one. They didn't like interlace the three shots oh, really? at all. They've literally just picked the best one, which is absolutely crazy. But it sort of jarred with me that that is the tagline of the film. Yes, me too. Because although I called it a gimmick and that's wrong, it's been treated as a gimmick. But in the context of the film, it it's doesn't not. feel gimmicky at all. Because it feels what so it, natural. It feels so natural. You forget it's happening. You're not aware of it. It's not a showy cinematography thing the whole time. And instead, what it gives you is exactly what you were saying. This sense that anything could happen, that every moment you are there with her as she makes every decision about what's going to happen and that you're being inexorably dragged towards one particular conclusion but you don't know what it is yet mm, and then the exactly. bit that really jolted me back into awareness that that is what happened is that basically the camera had been like right on her shoulder for two hours was right at the very end yeah when the camera then stays in a fixed position and she walks off and you feel this kind of grief or this bereavement it's like victoria come back we, we've been together for so long like exactly. how can you walk away from me i felt exactly the same and also that you're suddenly like wow i don't know who this person is yeah. because you spend the whole time with her and the way that the camera work does really intensify it as being from her perspective yeah and if everyone disappears then you stay with her and so you don't know what's going on you only have her view of what's going on and when she starts walking away from the camera you're a bit like hang on this person is actually a stranger for mm. all intents and purposes and it adds a whole nother layer of maybe she's not completely who she said she was or didn't say she was onto the film at the end so i think it's so clever the way that final shot it gives you a whole range of emotions because we only know the sort of facts she chooses to share with these guys that she meets that mm -hmm. that she works in this cafe that she's from spain that she's in berlin for three months she kind of forms a closer attachment immediately with one of the guys zona and they hang out in the cafe a bit and she plays the piano that's there and it's immediately obvious that she's amazing at the piano mm -hmm. and she explains that she's been like studying the piano since she was a child and she's been in the conservatoire in madrid but something happened and basically she was told that she wasn't going to be good enough to carry on and you, you assume that that's why she's come to Berlin to kind of get away from it but she never says that mm. and then she she gets very emotional she's playing and then she just stops suddenly and you get the feeling that the piano has become this thing for her where she's kind of been repressing her desire to do music and then it bursts out and it's really uncomfortable and difficult yeah it's almost like something that if she does too much of it she's consumed by it's a bit mm. like watching a drug addict or someone suddenly be like no 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 I'm not gonna have that drink I'm not gonna have that drink yeah. she like starts she gets really really into the song and then she has to be like I'm gonna stop playing now but she's amazing so so we know that about her and then that's it really we know precious mm. little more as the film goes on the strength of her character becomes more and more obvious because she's just a random girl from a nightclub she seems really happy to chat to these guys fairly keen to take a risk in that she'll like go up on a roof or like maybe steal some bottles of beer from well, a news agent did, did you find the first half an hour or so of the film you were really stressed out about the fact that she was hanging out with these strange mm. guys Absolutely. Were, I was like, something bad is going to happen yeah, to I was her. Gonna, like, they were, they're going to assault her. So you, I was really on edge. And then after, I can't remember even at what point, but suddenly I just started to trust them. And I was like, no, actually, whatever else they might be, as far as she's concerned, they're good guys. Like, and also, she is the strongest person yes. amongst these people. And actually, she is the scariest person mm. amongst these people. And that, for me, is why that final shot is so interesting. Because you're a bit like, maybe she's not who she says she is. Maybe it's, this is how she always wanted it to pan out. I don't know. Yeah. But obviously, that would be crazy. That would be so crazy and it's maybe a kind of paranoia that the film does to you more than any I don't have like a conspiracy theory that that's 
really what the plot no, of the film is. No, I don't think is. she planned it all the time. No, right? no, but it is really interesting how you're so worried about her and you see her as so vulnerable and as those layers begin to peel off, you realise that those are silly assumptions to have about yeah. her just because she's a young woman. She's actually yeah. incredibly strong and just has these reserves of ability coming out of nowhere. What we should say is, so one of the guys in the group that she meets up with, Boxer, has been in prison before. While he was in prison, he was kind of under the protection of this sort of gangster guy who has now called in this favour and Boxer has to go and meet this guy and he's been told he has to take three other people with him. But the fourth guy in the group is completely wasted and passed out and therefore no good. So they they like, Victoria, will you come with us? Like, we just need to be a group of four. It's going to be fine. Will you come? She's like, yeah, yeah, I'll come. So they go, they pinch a car, she drives it. And then when they get there, it turns out that what this gangster wants Boxer to do is rob a bank Mm. and they have to do it right now. Mm. And suddenly what was just a kind of, oh, just a favour, we'll take you straight back to where you work afterwards. Like, it's all cool. Like, I'll see you tomorrow. All this kind of thing. Suddenly it's a heist movie. Yeah, exactly. And it comes out of nowhere. So you get the first sort of half an hour, maybe even 45 minutes of the film is really, feels very art housey. Yeah. People meeting in a European city at night. And then it becomes this sort of heist movie. As there is a, a turn in tone, there's also a sort of moment where you feel like the whole plot of the movie could turn where they're in the car, Victoria's in the passenger seat and Zona is saying, we got to take her back to the cafe. She can't do this. We've just met her. We can't involve her in this ridiculous, it's not fair. And she says, no, I want to come. I want to come. I want to drive you. I want to be your driver. She's so insistent. That's the first moment for me where you're like, okay, that this girl is made of more than yeah. we think. It was really interesting to see the heist entirely from the perspective of the people doing it. Mm. So the fact that the gangster like makes them take this cocaine before they go and do it to make them aggressive. And one of the guys like freaks out and they have to stop on the way to the bank. She's the one who calms him down in the end. Mm. So they can actually go. And insist that they do it. And insist that they do it. And then when they get there, because they've had to hotwire this car, the car breaks and stops working while she's having to wait outside and she freaks out. And doesn't know how and doesn't to jumpstart it. Jump start it again, but they get away. And then the last 45 minutes of the film is, well, initially they go back to the same club and like party furiously for which about so 10 dumb. minutes, which is so dumb. That's why they get caught. And like two of them like take their clothes off and they're like jumping up and down and it's probably like 8am by this point. Mm. Kind of euphoric, but also that's the point of which I was like, they're doomed. They are actually doomed. And then obviously the police catch up with them. You know how sometimes in movies shootouts can look really like glamorous and exciting, whereas actually what this, both the filming style and also the way it's designed gives you is just how horrible and grim hiding behind some concrete in a children's play park is while the police are like put your weapons down or we'll shoot you yeah but it's also interesting how we're shielded from most of the violence that is happening at the hands of our protagonists Mm. so although we see them getting shooted against by the police and we feel awful for them and we see them do lots of terrible things including kidnap a baby and it's not that it's as simple as like we're completely on their side but we don't see them actually go into the bank we see them rehearse their heist and that's kind of horrifying enough because everything's from Victoria's perspective and she's the getaway driver and she has to stay in the car while the heist actually happens we never see any of the main violence that of course they're being chased for and I think that obviously alters our perspective on how we feel about that although they're victims essentially because they're victims of for example the prison system and that he's got involved in the with the wrong people in prison they're victims of a much bigger crime conglomerate that is insisting that they do this what is for them fairly low level crime and victims of poverty and so many other things but we don't see them 
making victims of other people in a really horrible way. Yeah. So it does mean that your sympathies lie more strongly with them, I think. Yeah, completely uncomplicatedly, you are you identify with them the whole time, mm. even though you infer that they've done some bad stuff. It kind of ends in tragedy for all of the guys. And then you just get this astonishing moment where Victoria she, walks away she just her... walks away. Yeah. It's a triumph of a film. Absolutely. It's not often that I watch a film and I go, I would watch this again every year for 20 years. Mm. Like, I just can't see ever getting tired of this yeah it was amazing i think i can i can imagine re-watching it would be a completely different experience mm. because as we've said being in the dark is so much of the experience of watching this film i'm interested to know whether if you rewatch it knowing what you know about her character towards the end at the beginning I'd... does some of her behavior at the start seem more sort of loaded or what signals they have or, yeah yeah um, i'd be really interested to find out but yeah absolute triumph of the film can't recommend it highly enough Now we're going to talk about Zootropolis, which for the avoidance of confusion is called Zootopia in the US and is titled Other Things in Other Territories, but in the UK it's Zootropolis. It's a Disney animated film set in a world where animals have evolved to be city-dwelling, clothes-wearing citizens. It follows Judy, Zootropolis's first rabbit police officer, and her unlikely crime-solving partnership with the fox Nick Wilde, who is voiced by Jason Bain. Zootropolis, a gleaming city where animals of all breeds predator and prey alike live together in peace and harmony. Hi, I'm Judy, your new neighbor. Yeah, well, we're loud. Don't expect you to apologize for it. ZPD's first rabbit officer, Judy Hopps. You ready to make the world a better place? I really like that the fox is called Nicholas P. Wild. <laughs> He's P. Wild, guys. <laughs> it's confusing, the name thing, isn't it? Yeah, I'd love to hear a presentation from a marketing person as to why they felt British people would not be able to handle the phrase Zootopia. What's it called in China? That was my favourite one. Crazy Animal City. <laughs> Crazy Animal City. <laughs> Obviously in Mandarin or whatever, yeah, but yeah. that's what it translates as. I love that so much. Yeah, I would really like to read sort of like an 8,000 word essay describing what the significance is of the two titles and how it would change your viewing experience to go in and see Zootopia and Zootropolis because the two words kind of mean very different things right? They do and I actually prefer Zootopia the American title. Do you? Yes because I feel like that immediately gives you a sense of the political aims of, of Zootropolis. Zootropolis the or is city. it called Zootopia in the film? What's the city no, called? No no the city is called Zootropolis in the film Zootopolis. as well. But of course Zootopia it is not. Yeah exactly. So I don't know. Make you think. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, I, I think the American title sets that up sooner. And that's interesting. And there's more irony at play. Yes. Perhaps. Which is clearly what <laughs> Disney are going for <laughs> with the release of what I believe is their 55th animated feature film. Wow. I want to go straight in and say I loved this film. Yeah, me too. I thought it was so funny so clever. A lot of messages. A lot, lot of, of messages. <laughs> lots of, it gave me lots of feelings about multiculturalism. Yeah, exactly. Lots of stuff about, you know, the hierarchy and mm. overlapping oppressions. And I thought it was really, really clever. So basically we start off with our like little bouncing bunny, Judy Pops, who is like at school and like a little baby bunny and like getting bullied by the other bigger, more aggressive 
predatory animals. Because the thing about this society is that animals all live together in harmony. There's no predator or prey anymore and everyone can be friends. Animals do not eat each other. Yes. So yeah, she gets bullied by like a bigger fox and she's like upset about it, but she's like, I'm going to achieve my dreams of becoming a police officer, even if the fox bully says I can't. Uh, and then she does. We like, there's a great training montage, which I really enjoyed <laughs> of her like sort of in a Mulan style, like, you know, going over some climbing walls and like obstacle courses and just you know being a bunny cop and it's great and then she gets to the big city leaves her family behind gets to zootropolis and finds that being a police officer as a rabbit is really hard and there's a really great scene where she like it's her first day and she's all excited and she like goes into the room and idris elba plays this like big bison kind of (laughs) who's the police chief yeah Yeah, and he's like we've had some new recruits today and we don't care about them so i'm not going to name them it's a very like macho atmosphere and all the animals are really big and she's really little she's like a feminine animal and they're all really masculine so for me that was the moment that was sort of the feminism angle yeah and then as it goes on the easy comparison becomes a lot more sort of race based i'd say but obviously it's ridiculous to try and (laughs) map their the prejudices of this animal world exactly onto our own because they don't quite match but it is definitely where that exploration of like oh our stereotypes about other species are harmful to our multicultural city start to come in yeah well because so, the political sort of dichotomy that gets set up is the predator prey one mm-hmm. that there's something nasty going on where previously totally upstanding citizens of zootropolis who happen to be from the kind of predator class of animal suddenly go savage and hurt people mm. hurt other animals we learn that about one in ten animals in zootropolis is a predator and the political hierarchy the mayor and stuff is freaking out because our whole society is built on the fact that we can live together in harmony Mm -hmm. if nine out of ten citizens worry that they're going to be attacked by their own neighbors what does that mean for how we live exactly and there's also lots of other sort of smaller like stereotypes but like between species and stuff so one of the first characters judy meets in zootropolis is a fox her rabbit parents have given her fox repellent spray to Mm. take with her and they're like don't trust foxes and then she obviously meets this fox and she's really surprised and he's like a really nice guy and she like really patronizingly tells him that he's really articulate and there's lots of little moments in this film like that that you can like map on to quite specific analogies i thought that actually when so uh the deputy mayor voiced by jenny slate of obvious child who's like a lamb yeah he's like a a sort of small you i suppose Mm. she's helping them with something at the computer and the fox just like touches her hair yeah, yeah, that's uh, another really which good Which is one. another really good one. These sort of microaggressions between yeah. species that you could map onto sort of microaggressions about gender or race in our society. Yeah, exactly. She's really surprised to see that this fox is a good guy and like stands up for him in this really patronising way in a shop and then it's revealed that actually he is a quote sly fox and is like scamming on the side, really enjoying his like scam lifestyle. Mm. And then <laughs> she kind of becomes mates with him as she realises that in that sort of classic way he's like the criminal who could like help her with her police activities in befriending him she obviously realizes that all her stereotypes are kind of stupid and that he might behave in a certain way because people expect him to behave a certain way well he sort of says that doesn't he he says um if people think you're just a sly fox why bother trying to be anything else yeah one thing i really loved about the world of the city incidentally is the fact that it has totally different climactic zones (laughs) yeah so it's like segregated (laughs) into districts kind of in an awesome way because it's so that all the animals can live in a habitat that they're comfortable in. Yeah. So there's like tundra land <laughs> and rainforest, rainforest zone and... and Sahara city and like all the different. And then there's like road, small rodentville where <laughs> everything is tiny. 
everything is tiny and uh, and all the houses are like up to the fox's knees you know yeah and then there's like lots of smaller jokes like they go to the duv dmv the dmv place where you get a driving license yeah. yeah they go to the dmv and it's all it's totally staffed by sloths and yeah. they're all like so slow this was one of the funniest bits of the movie yeah. for me. The scene where like the sloth is like trying to trace a license plate for them and he's doing it so slowly and it's just you can't you can't articulate why it's so funny. You have to see it. What well, are you saying that because he's a sloth he can't be fast? Flash, flash, hundred yard dash. Buddy, it's nice to see you. Nice to see you hmm. too. Hmm. Officer Judy Hap, CPD, how are you? I am doing fine well what hang in there can i do well i was hoping you could run a for you well i was hoping you today. could today but it's just the, brilliant this, oh and the slow motion facial expressions yeah, exactly <laughs> that's the amazing like the fox tells him a joke and then you get like <laughs> full five seconds of like slow motion feature movement into smile it's, yeah, it's brilliant so funny it's really good the best of all children's films are obviously the ones that both children and adults oh. can enjoy in equal measure so there'll be like a really silly like slapstick bit of humor that the kids will really laugh out loud at and then there'll be a Godfather reference for the yeah. for the grown-ups and like everyone will be like cracking up at the Godfather references, which I loved. Yeah, I mean it's definitely up there with like finding Nemo in that way. Yeah. You know, the gangster stuff is really I love that. So the the gangsters are all what are they? Polar bears? No, no, they're they're rats. Oh, they're the, like... the, yeah. So he's yeah. all his henchmen are like polar bears. Oh, polar bears. And but... then the big reveal is like the polar bears are walking in and they're getting bigger and bigger. And he's like, is, is that Mr. Big? Is that Mr. Big? And then like the biggest polar bear of all comes in and like stretches out his hand and there's just like a small vole <laughs> in the palm of his hand and he's like in an armchair like that sort of fox's biscuit gangster. Yeah. You disrespect me on the day of my daughter's wedding. <laughs> he's like tiny. <laughs> it's so funny. That is excellent. One of my favorite bits that I was like laughing out loud at in the whole. My favourite joke in all of Frozen, which like made me cry with laughter when I saw it, is the mayor I keep calling Weaselton and then he like will snap <laughs> yeah, at them. Yeah. Weselton! It's Weselton! And he like looks just like a weasel and it made me laugh so much in Frozen. And then in this film they like come across a weasel and they call him Mr. Weselton and he's like, It's Weaselton! <laughs> yeah, that was really good. <laughs> which made me laugh loads. So it was like full of little joys for me. I found the whole thing just like a complete joy to watch and like really smart and brilliant. Yeah, and, and like I, I love the the running thread about so the biggest pop star in Zootropolis <laughs> is called Gazelle. Yeah. Uh and the receptionist at the police department, who's a cheetah, uh, is obsessed with her and he's got this app where it like looks like you're dancing with Gazelle and so at various so times good. in the film he's like makes other people do this, show, showing people this. And then the whole film ends with like a massive gazelle concert. I know. Um, when I was watching this uh, my boyfriend turned to me in the cinema and was like, you know, they filmed this at an actual gazelle concert. <laughs> I was like, great, good one. <laughs> but yeah, I loved all that. It was really funny. Yeah, it's such a textured world. And whilst, and, and like 90% of me was like, this is making this film amazing. The fact that this world feels so fully realised. Yeah, like just... the back of her phone will be like a carrot with a bite out of it instead of an apple. Like all these little exactly. things. Exactly, all like, these oh. touches are so, so brilliant. About 10% of me was like, they've just done this for the merchandising opportunities. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Um, and for the spin-offs and the sequels but you know when a film is excellent who cares yeah exactly so i would recommend that you all go see it and think yeah. deeply about structural oppression and also just have two hours of pure joy <laughs> but who could ask for more you can have both exactly <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Seriously. All you have to do is search SRSLY in iTunes or any other podcasting app you use. While you're there, it would be really great if you could leave us an iTunes review as it helps other people find the show. We also rely on you listeners for your recommendations. So if you want to tell us what you thought about something or if you've got something we should watch, you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, via email. All the details are on seriouslypodcast.com. If you like, you can also recommend us to your friends, family, neighbours, strangers. Let them know that you like the podcast and they should be listening to it too. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.